This is the Yahoo Finance Podcast. The following is from our All Market Summit held here in New York City right in Times Square on October 25th, 2017. Enjoy. Now for a conversation on the Federal Reserve's next move, Yahoo Finance's Justine Underhill with FedWatchers Doug Peebles and Abby Joseph-Cohen. All right, it is a busy time for the U.S. Federal Reserve. President Donald Trump is expected to announce his pick for the next Fed chair by the end of next week. Then the Fed has already begun unwinding its balance sheet with billions of dollars of bonds being shed monthly. On top of that, we have another FOMC meeting next week. So soon, so soon. And then, of course, we have several Fed vacancies, which gives President Donald Trump the opportunity to leave his mark at the U.S. Central Bank. Lots to dig into here. Joining us now for more, Doug Peebles, Abby Joseph Cohen. Great to have you here today. All right, so let's get right into it. Start with Janet Yellen. Does she stay or does she go? President Trump has actually been somewhat complimentary of her recently. Yeah, I, I, I don't know the answer to that, and, and uh, it's very important, but just because it's very important doesn't mean that we necessarily know the answer. Um, my best guess is that, you know, uh, probably 60-40 that she goes as opposed to stays. And what do you think, Abby? Well, let's think about what should happen. Uh, we've been very fortunate over the last two uh, Fed uh, chairmanships to have just the right people in at just the right time. Uh, during Ben Bernanke's period leading up to the financial crisis, we were very fortunate to have Professor Bernanke who is perhaps the world's greatest expert on the Great Depression and therefore financial crises dealing with the most recent one. Um, the problems dealing uh, that the current Fed is dealing with now are related to the labor markets. And there are very few people other than Janet Yellen who knows as much about Janet Yellen as on labor economics. So I think it would be great to invite her back, but I don't know uh, what the outcome will ultimately be. Do you think if he picks Yellen, he could extricate himself from any blame for a potential downturn? Because if he does pick someone, then he kind of owns whatever happens at the Fed. Well, Doug made another point which is critical, and that is there are several other positions that need to be filled. Um, and so um, the president can decide to keep or not keep Janet Yellen, but that's not the only important personnel decision he has to make. Now, if it's 60-40 uh, that she goes, who do you think is more likely to fill the Fed position? So, I, I, I mean... And what do you think markets are pricing in right now? I think markets are starting to price in the, the fact that regardless who the Fed chair is, that not only will the uh, asset unwind be a, a major force in the markets, but also that the labor market is in good enough shape, um, and broadly speaking, the growth rate is uh, uh, the, the growth trend in the economy is strong enough that the Fed needs to move away from this extraordinarily stimulus, uh, stimulative policy into one that's just stimulative. Um, and so the two-year note today is trading at 160 basis points, and I think slowly the market is going to move to price in very much closer to where the, the Fed has uh, already indicated where rates are going towards their dot plot. Um, and I think that it's, it's probably going to be somewhat disruptive as we get uh, the market repricing towards higher rates, particularly at the short end, 
And we have to deal with a combination of not only the Fed's unwind, which, as you mentioned, has started now, but it's starting at a very gradual level uh, or a low level and will gradually pick up. But before you know it, the first quarter is going to be here and we're going to be up towards $50 billion a month in, in liquidations. At the same time, the ECB is probably going to be changing, we'll hear that tomorrow, their policy in, into no more asset purchases by that same time. So I think that this whole conundrum is going to be very, very interesting for financial markets. And my guess is that when, when we look at markets, we look at the, uh, the, the types of assets that are risk mitigating like, like treasury bonds, and then we look at the type of assets that are return seeking like equities and high yield bonds. And I think that the period is going to be very interesting going forward for both of those. And I think that the market's current uh, expectation is that this important Fed situation is really only important for the risk mitigating space. And I think that that's probably where, at the moment, the market has it wrong. And I actually want to dig into the Fed's unwind actually more in just a minute. Um, but I first want to follow up, Abby, on what you were saying about all these vacancies at the Fed. Right now, there are four vacancies. Um, now, Jerome Powell is a front runner to become the new Fed chair. If he becomes the Fed chair, then guess what? There are five vacancies at the Fed board in, uh, out of a total number of seven. So what do you see possibly happening going forward in terms terms of these vacancies, and what would a Fed, trumped up Fed board look like here? Okay, I don't want to handicap any particular candidates or nominees, but I would say, as a former Fed economist, what I wouldn't want to see, and that would be a lot of people, or any people, coming on who are not flexible in their thought processes. You know, there is some a movement towards selecting uh, individuals who are focused in on rules, who are focused in on very specific models. And I believe that's a mistake because rules and models are a wonderful place to start. But then the very important thing that any Fed chair or Fed governor needs to ask is what could be wrong uh, with this model or how can we augment what this model is telling us. And we know now that the US economy and the global economy are dealing with issues that are unprecedented and hence haven't been modeled. That includes the asset unwind. It includes the extraordinarily low levels of inflation. And it also includes the structural changes in the US economy, where we have gone through now about nine years of economic recovery and expansion, and yet an awful lot of people don't feel very good about it. I think the next people who go onto the board and perhaps the new chair really has to be a person and people who are flexible in their thought processes and are willing to take in a lot of new information. I, I completely agree with that. I, I would add that uh, diversity of candidates and, and eventual appointees is probably a very good idea as well, um, as opposed to uh, a bunch of cookie cutter people who do all think the same way. Um, and, and I think that that's an important element that we need to keep an eye on as well. Now we are, or markets at least, are expecting another Fed rate hike in December, but we do have another FOMC meeting next week. What do you think investors should be paying attention to next week when the Fed makes its statement? Well, I, I think that we've all become uh, slaves to the wording of the, the announcements. Um, but I, uh, you know, our take, and, and this is our guess, is that they, they go in, in December, and then they go once in the first quarter and again in the second quarter. 
Um, and, and again, I don't think the markets are particularly prepared for that, although I think that they're getting prepared for that uh, uh, as, as, as more and more data comes in that suggests that we don't need the emergency levels that, that we're currently still living with. Do you think the markets are prepared for the rate hike cycle that's coming? Uh, the economic department at Goldman Sachs is a little more aggressive in terms of assuming that as the data come in for 2018, things might look a little bit stronger in the economy and in the labor markets, and that might encourage the Fed to do a bit more. But I believe in general the consensus has it right that this is a Fed that is unidirectional in its thought process uh, in terms of gradually removing the stimulus. And let's keep in mind, this is a period where there's an awful lot of stimulus. It's not that they're going to be moving to a bearish, tough, slam on the brakes position. They're going to be taking their foot off the accelerator in, in a gradual manner. And speaking of taking the foot off the accelerator, I want to get to the Fed's uh, $4.5 trillion balance sheet, the big gorilla. Uh, so the Fed expanded its balance sheet during the financial crisis as a way to sort of stem all the issues that were happening, buying billions or trillions of, of bonds. And now they're reversing that process, and they're starting sh slowly shedding about $10 billion per month. That's going to grow to $50 billion per month. Now, the Fed has said that they don't expect to use the balance sheet as a tool to affect monetary policy. But moves this big, I would expect to have some impact on the markets. Well, I, I think when you look back at, at the 4.5 trillion balance sheet and the growth from 2008 to today, and you add alongside of it what's happened in Japan, what's happened in the UK, what's happened in, in the Eurozone, uh, altogether it's upwards of 15 plus trillion dollars. And our take is that the, the real economy didn't want that money. Uh, didn't use that money, and, and therefore the nominal growth rate in the real economy over that time frame relative to the amount of stimulus has been quite disappointing. Um, and now that we're at the doorstep of the ending of that policy and the reversal of that policy, um, we also don't think it's going to be uh, curtailing any economic growth that we had. But at the same time, Asset prices reacted tremendously to it on the upside, and I think you would have to be somewhat naive to, to think that asset prices can also react to it on the downside. And, and so we're, we're, we're fairly cautious as it relates to that. And I think the other thing that Abby touched upon um, in, in her comments about Dr. Bernanke, at the time in 2008, 2009, he was by far the best person to have on board at the time. And the emergency measures that, that, that they utilized for the sake of the economy was extremely uh, well-founded. But that was 2008 and 2009. This is, we're late 2017 here. So I would just be cautious relative to valuations that maybe uh, things could get a little bit more disruptive than the market thinks. And, and by way of what the market thinks, I just look at the implied volatility index and it's at, you know, at, at very, very close to record low levels. And I just think that that's probably a bit too optimistic. So do you see this as having an impact on the yield curve going forward and possibly having an impact for the banks? Um, we are at a situation now where interest rates are probably 
too low, not just in the United States, but around the world. Um, if we look at a number of other developed economies, more than half of them still have negative interest rates. This is not a sustainable situation. And so you are asking the right question. What happens when interest rates resume, shall we say, a more normal path? And I believe that there are several factors at work here. Number one, I do think that interest rates will be moving higher. I think you could get a further steepening of the yield curve. Let's keep in mind the yield curve has already steepened. The actual impact on the real economy may be fairly modest at the beginning because cost of capital for companies who wish to borrow or potential homeowners who wish to borrow isn't particularly high. So I think from that standpoint, we can expect not that much variability um, in the real economy. I do believe that we need to be watching the financial markets. It's not just the VIX, which is low. It is the volatility measures in so many other countries. And it's not just equities, it's fixed income. And so when we talk about how has the model changed over time, we need to look not just at current inflation and demand for capital in the United States. Let's keep an eye on the dollar, because one of the reasons that we've had so much liquidity in the capital markets in the US hasn't been just the Fed. It has also been foreign investors who have wanted to keep money in the US dollar. If for whatever reason, the dollar becomes more questionable. Perhaps there's worries about geopolitical events or political leadership in the United States. That's something that could cast aspersions on whether foreign investors are still as comfortable as they've been in owning US Treasury securities. And we've also seen big uh, inflows into emerging markets as well, so that could have a trigger for a big unwind there. Now, I do want to get to the economy. Um, the economy, from how, depending on how you look at it, is fairly strong. Unemployment's low. Uh, consumer confidence is high. Business confidence is high. But then there are other measures. If you look at inequality, um, that doesn't look so great. So how? How do you think we should be looking at the economy? And do you think looking at the economy through averages actually camouflages a lot of what's going on in the US? Um, I believe that averages, in fact, are just averages. They are, in fact, masking so many of these important factors. And I posted a piece on Yahoo Finance that addresses this. And what we see is that although the unemployment rate in the United States is at 4.5% and likely moving lower, there are still many people who aren't feeling very good because there are enormous divergences based upon education, based upon industry. And one factor that I don't think gets enough attention is the divergence in the employment picture based upon location. Um, here in the city of New York and other major cities, what we basically see is that since the last peak in jobs, we're up more than 8%. Nationwide, we're up a much more meager 2%, which means there are some communities, mainly rural and small towns and small cities, where there have been job losses. And a very important question for policymakers is, what can they do about it? Um, we have had very stimulative monetary policy. 
monetary policy can only go so far. Um, to use an old expression, it is a bunderbluss approach. I don't know if people know what that was. It was an old weapon, an old gun, that would basically do a scattershot. Uh, we need things that are much more targeted, and that typically means fiscal policy aimed at education, aimed at urban development, uh, aimed at creation of jobs and opportunities in specific industries. Um, and we have not really heard very much yet uh, in terms of new policy initiatives that might take care of these existing problems. Now, Doug, you were talking about the Fed inflating asset prices. Do you think that they've been paying too much attention to the averages? Uh, where, where do you think they should be focusing? Well, I, I, I think that, the, you know, from the time in 1994 when Dr. Greenspan decided he wasn't going to follow the monetary aggregates anymore, um, they, they pretty obviously, along with other major central banks, have been focusing on some measure of core inflation. And, and I would say that in that time frame, and, and Abby characterized inflation as being, I think, disappointingly low or something that, that you said, I think we get a little bit too um, precise in measuring the core inflation number. And I think it's running somewhere around 1.5 or 1.6 or something like that. Relative to a 2% target, that doesn't seem that far off to me. But in 1999, we had an equity bubble. In 2006, the run-up to 2006, we had a housing bubble. And we've seen all asset prices do extremely well, even though this core inflation measure has been very, very flat. So I, I think that, um, the, and, and again, not to suggest that monetary policy is the answer to all issues. But if, if there isn't a, a response through macroprudential policies or something like this, I think that we, we create a situation where asset markets become, uh, first of all, uh, uh, more important in the economy and almost at the point where they're driving the economy as opposed to a reflection of the economy. And I think that that's very, very unhealthy. So I think that if we could actually have a more broader definition of what constitutes inflation, it would be healthy from a central banker's point of view. I'd like to make a more general point. I agree wholeheartedly that we may be misinterpreting inflation measures. And I, for one, believe that core inflation is probably higher than it's being measured. But there are other measures that are wrong as well, including industrial production, GDP, and a whole host of others. And one of the things we have to keep in mind going back over history is whenever there are notable structural changes in the economy, you have to change the manner in which data are collected. And what have we done as a nation during this most recent period of structural change? We've actually reduced the amount of money and the people power that we're putting on this problem. There have been reductions at the Commerce Department, in the Census Bureau, at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in terms of just the people trying to collect the facts. I, for one, am a big fan of facts. Um, and, and I think we ought to be doing a, a better job on that. I'm curious as to what you both think about tax reform, given the state of the economy. Is that something that we actually need right now? And, and how do you see the Fed possibly reacting to that? Well, I think the Fed will react uh, when they have some clarity as, as it relates to the, the tax reform. I, I personally think that, that the whole tax situation is far, far too complicated. And there's, there's way too many special interests that are 
um, impacting the whole state of affairs. So, I mean, in a perfect world, I, I would love a, a, a far, far simpler tax code. Um, if you ask me whether I'm expecting a far simpler tax code, I'd say no, I'm not expecting a far simpler tax code. And what do you think about the tax it, It's too situation. soon to know. Uh, we don't know what that package is going to look like, nor do we know if the package will become law. Um, but to the extent that the early estimates are that the deficit will increase $1.5 trillion as a consequence of some of these proposals, that's probably not very good timing. You normally want to have this kind of stimulative fiscal policy when the economy is in recession, not when it's been growing for nine years, not when the unemployment rate is already uh, at down to 4.5%. Keep in mind the comments I made before, not everybody in the labor market has benefited from that. But this is an economy that is doing well, not an economy that needs an extra goosing at this point by broad fiscal policy. Would we benefit from targeted fiscal policy? I believe yes. Would we benefit from long-term tax reform that simplifies things, that encourages the right sort of economic activity? Absolutely. Uh, but an increase in the deficit of 1.5 trillion at this point, to me, is somewhat well, problematic. One of the things that we've, we've been quite accurate at measuring is the debt levels, <laughs> and those are high. So that's, They're that's, already high. And that's the so number that we have. More, more debt globally on, you know, on a situation that is where economic growth, you know, we, we could say that on a, on a trend basis it's looking better, but I don't think anybody would say it looks great. And yet we have, you know, heaped on, on uh, debt on top of debt in order to get where we are today. Well, this is a whole other conversation for another time. You guys, this has been great. Thank you so much for shedding so much light on the Fed. Abby Joseph Cohen, Doug Peebles, thank you guys so much. Thanks so much for listening. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.